Sometimes it takes us a few minutes to get settled. During the scripture reading, I, I hear lots of rustling of papers, people flipping to the, find the page uh, before the, well, I should say after even the, the, the reader is, is uh, begun. So I just want to make sure we caught what was just read to us. What was, the, what was that psalm about, ultimately? Did you catch it? It was about the Word of God, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. I, I love that, uh, that ending part about how it's sweeter than honey, right? It's about the Word of God. It's, it's David saying to the Lord how, how grateful he is and how, how um, he, his understanding of the, the Word of God being the best thing for him and for the world. And that, that's why I wanted that read. The, the sermon title today is The Game-Changing Power of God's Word. If you haven't picked up on it yet, in Ezra, so much of what we've been talking about is the power of the Word of God. It, what, what's happened here? I mean, you, you've got a people who have gone off into exile because of their sin. This is a people who have largely forgotten God. And so they've been, at least their, their parents, their, their previous generations, they had been... As a, as a consequence for their sin, their rebellion, their forgetting of God, their disregarding of God's word, they'd been exiled by their, taken captive by their enemies. And so now we've got this return. The Lord had said, I'll, I'll bring you back. You know, you, this is the consequence for your, your sin, but I'm going to, by my mercy, I'll bring you back into the land. And so 70 years later, they come back and what's happening? What's happening is they are rediscovering the Word of God. Revival is happening amongst the people there because the Word is being opened and taught again. And so that's what Ezra is about. We're, you know, we're going to see ups and downs with that because just like us, they're, they're, they're foolish people, right? I mean, we have times of, of devotion to the Lord and times when we just blow it. And they're in the same boat. But the overarching theme here is that there is revival through the Word. Uh, and that's what today is so much all about as well. You might feel like we're beating a drum here. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what the book of Ezra does. In fact, uh, last week, you remember Andy started off his sermon by asking us, where's Waldo? Remember that? He wasn't talking about the guy with the red and white striped sweater and the beanie. He was talking about a guy who preceded uh, the reformers uh, that we're familiar so much with, Luther, Calvin, uh, a man named Waldo, who, much like Luther and Calvin, had, by the word of God, sort of rediscovered salvation by faith. Right? Uh, so anyway, all that to say, we were asked, where's Waldo? And I wonder if you've been asking this question, because we've been now six chapters through the book of Ezra. Uh, I think we've been five weeks or so now through the book. This is the, the fifth week. Are you asking this question? Where's Ezra? We haven't seen, we haven't met Ezra yet. We've, his name is on the, the book. It's the, it's the title of the book. I think he wrote the book, but we actually haven't met him yet until today. Chapter seven, we're halfway through the book, or actually more than halfway through the book. There's only 10 chapters in the book of Ezra, but what happens today is we start to turn a corner. We meet Ezra finally. Uh, I'll explain a little bit how that comes about. But I also want to say this, that, that the book at this sort of uh, halfway mark, if that's what we're going to call it, uh, really sort of starts over. 
Everything that we saw happening through chapter 6, which was a return of exiles into Jerusalem, into Judah and Israel, uh, their rediscovering of the word, their faltering, their repentance, uh, God delivering them again, you know, all of that is about to start over and happen again in the following generation. So if you missed the last few weeks and you missed Ezra 1 through 6, fear not, you're kind of going to hear it again as we go through 7 through 10 over the next few weeks, all right? Uh, so again, Ezra shows up here. We've got this second wave of exiles. What's happening now as we get to, to chapter 7 is we've just uh, fast-forwarded about 60 years from where we left off at the end of chapter 6. You recall at the end of chapter 6, they, they finished the temple. They built the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they had the Passover feast, and that took place around the year 516, BC, which was a, 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 about 20 years or so after the, the initial return in 537 BC. All right. So that's happened. And then we're flashing forward now another uh, 60 years, almost 80 years from the original return. And, and we're seeing a second group of people coming back into the land. And this is the group that Ezra came back with. Okay. So just a, a, a sense of bearing as we get to chapter 7, can you get a, a chronology of where we're at? We're flashing forward 60 years. Would you look at it with me? We're going to read through chapter 7. If you haven't flipped there yet, it's page 393, if you're using the, the black Bible on the seat back in front of you. Ezra chapter 7. Now after this, this being 60 years later, after the completion of the temple and the celebration of Passover, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, so we've got a new king now, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mereoth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, and I love this, son of Aaron the priest. This Ezra, just in case you were wondering which Ezra it was. <laughs> you just got his whole genealogy. Let me tell you the most important part of that genealogy was the last part. Okay, it's tracing his fathers and his grandfathers all the way back to Aaron which is to say that Ezra was a priest and a legit one because the priesthood was from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. Okay, So that's what that's all about. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is, was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. So again, we're, we're, we're seeing this second wave of people go back and it's telling us that as they left, it was a four month journey to get from Babylon, which is now Persia, into 
Jerusalem. Okay? Took them four months. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do, according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls, excuse me, it falls to you to provide, may you, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, All such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. I'll stop there. So I'm just going to recap basically what's happened. Again, it's kind of like what happened before. Right? Remember the, the original exile, the king had, had given them this decree. You can go back. You can build, rebuild your temple, rebuild according to the customs of your God, worship there, sacrifice there, take gold, replenish all the stuff that was taken out of the original temple. He gave it back to them so that they could go and, and restore the temple to set it all back in order. And we said back then that the, there, this was a common um, a common practice for the Persian empires, the kings of the Persian empires. They, they were not worshipers of the God of Israel. They were pluralists, right? They, what they believed was that 
you know, basically there was lots of different gods and every, every different group of people that they conquered had different kinds of gods and, and they were kind of acting in a very political way with this motive to say, look, if we're going to send people back into their lands, that's a good idea because we, we want subjects who are reasonably happy. So let's let them go back and let's let them worship their gods because A, again, we want to keep them happy. It's not, not good for the kingdom to have a bunch of unhappy subjects who feel like we've imposed some religious restrictions. So they, they enact a, a, a broad rule of religious freedom. And they also have this sense, because they're, they're pluralists, because they do believe in different gods, it's not that they don't believe in the existence of Yahweh, it's just that they don't worship Yahweh, but they don't want to tick him off either. Right? So, do, it, do what you got to do, right? Let's make this God happy. Let's not make this God mad at us. They, they say that in the letter. We don't want him getting mad at us, right? So that's what's going on here. So you got the second wave of people and this, this invitation to, to again take back people who have significance in the worship, the public worship of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the, 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 the singers, right? The, apparently not all of the objects of worship from the original temple had been returned the first time. So we see again this invitation here's here's some more of that stuff take it back it's very much the same kind of thing that's happening again and for the same reasons all right and again Ezra this time instead of Zerubbabel this time it's Ezra who's the leader of the people and they go back much in the same way and and I'll pick it up again in verse 27 this is Ezra's comment on that decree he says blessed be the Lord the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love. This is God who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. With that said, I want to pray. Father, we pray that the hand of the Lord our God would be upon us. As we consider this chapter, as we consider Ezra's life and ministry and what it says to us about the game-changing power of the Word of God, may Your Word change us. And may Your Word powerfully work in us and through us to have a great effect in our own day as it did in the day of Ezra. Thank you for this word. We thank you for the access that we have to it and to you because of your son. May we see him this morning as well. We pray that in his name. Amen. All right, here's the main idea. All right, main idea. This isn't working. (laughs) There you go. God's favor to change the world rests upon those who know the Bible, who live according to the Bible, and teach the Bible to others by their knowledge and experience. Right? God's favor. That's, an, that's a key idea, an important concept. The favor of God to change the world rests on those who are people of the book. We know it. We live it. We teach it. That's the example that we're going to see in Ezra. So that there's basically two takeaways for this morning's message. And we're going to see Ezra as a man who knows the, the Word of God. And then we're going to see Ezra then ultimately as a man upon whom the favor of God is upon. All right? 
So, Yaz, if you could advance that for me. Let's look at our first point. Ezra was a man of the Bible. We see this over and over again throughout the text. Did you notice when I was reading it, verse 6, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 25, over and over again, it talks about Ezra being a, a scribe. It talks about him being a man of the law of the Lord, of the God of heaven. It talks about, it says that phrase over and over again. You get the sense that, that not only is Ezra a man of the Bible, of the word, but we get a, some, we get a sense of the word itself. It is the word of the God of heaven. Right? There's an authority to that. God's word was something that Ezra knew. And verse 10 is the key verse. This is a great verse. This is actually a verse that I remember learning very early on and memorizing very early on in my own uh, ministry, becoming a pastor. Because I, if, if you're, and I think this is applied broadly to, to all believers, I really do. But if you're planning on being in a preaching ministry, a teaching ministry, please pay special attention to this verse. So It's so good and it's so important. Verse 10 again, look at it. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach. That That's the heart of the of, of any man or woman who desires to be in ministry. Right? So let's talk about that a little bit. He set his heart to study. We know that Ezra, based on what's told here, is a priest, right? He's the son of Aaron. We're also told that he was a scribe. So so what does that tell us about what he did? Well, I mean, the priests were, were, were charged with the duty of the temple worship, right? They were the ones who were in, in a mediating, mediating state for the people. And a scribe was one who wrote down the word. They, you know, they didn't have publishing houses. They didn't have Xerox machines, right? So any copies of the word had to be made by hand. And that was the job of a scribe. It's interesting, when you think about scribes, if you, if, you, if you know the New Testament well enough, you might hear the word scribe, and, and the first thing that might come to your mind is, oh, aren't those the bad guys, right? Jesus, he harps on the scribes and the Pharisees a lot in the New Testament, right? And there's good reason for that, because the scribes who were not faithful in their duty, not faithful to uh, continue the Word of God rightly, or teach the Word of God rightly, uh, were, were doing a tremendous disservice to the people of Israel, and a, and a terrible affront to God, right? So, yes, scribes are oftentimes in the Bible, you know, kind of like imperial stormtrooper type enemy-looking guys, right? But, but a scribe uh, doing his job is an important and good gift to God's people, and this is what Ezra was. Ezra was not a, a bad scribe. In fact, this verse tells us very clearly he was a faithful scribe because he studied the word, he practiced the word, and he taught the word. You ever known a person who knew their Bible so much so that it would just seem to bubble out of them all the time? Ezra was this kind of a guy. That's, that's kind of the message that we're getting here. This was a man who bled the Bible. He studied the Bible, he would have been trained up to do that, right? And the fact that he was a scribe, he's continually writing it over and over. There's meditation on his part. This is a guy who knew 
the Word. Some of you are, are, are like this, and I wonder if, if others of us who maybe aren't quite that skilled uh, as, as Ezra here, maybe, maybe you've met somebody like that, right? It leaves an impression upon you, doesn't it? I've got uh, uh, the, the privilege of, of taking a class uh, up at Trinity with D.A. Carson, and some of you have, have had classes with him in, as well in the past, and, I, and I, this is one thing that I, when you're sitting in, in the classroom and he's up there teaching and lecturing, you get that sense from him. It's kind of intimidating. I'm not going to lie, right? But but here's where it comes out. I mean, he's he's teaching and and everything that he says is, is focused on the word. But but then somebody in the class might ask a question, and it'll be just some random question that that just comes out of their own head, right? Nobody else is thinking about this idea, and they'll ask a question that's re- that's pertinent to the Bible. And I kid you not, every single time it happens, Carson's like. Oh yeah, and he engages with it, he quotes them, he'll be able to cross-reference different passages that talk about what they've just asked. And it's, it's, it's crazy, crazy. It's awesome. It's really intimidating too, because you think, I don't think I know my Bible as well as this guy. But there's something powerful about somebody who does, right? And that's kind of the idea here, that Ezra is, is, is that kind of man. He set his heart to study the word. Let me let me point out something about this, and uh, you can. Let's see. Yeah, flip over one more. One more slide. That's what we're talking about. Um. I read I read some stats this week that were really sad. I'm going to share them with you. I hope this isn't reflective of who we are as a congregation. But it is reflective, apparently, based on studies of who we are as a nation of professing believers, uh, both here and in the UK. This is from a July 2015 article in Christianity Today. It was written by Ed Stetzer, who happens to currently be the interim pastor at the Moody Church. He says this. He says, Christians claim to believe the Bible is God's word. We claim it's God's divinely inspired and errant message to us. Yet despite this, we aren't reading it. A recent LifeWay research study found only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. And almost one in five churchgoers, 20%, say they never read the Bible. Yikes, right? That number, by the way, that... 20%, that one in five, is essentially the same number of people who say they read it every day. So 80% of us aren't in the Word that much. Here's what he says. He says, because we don't read God's Word, it follows that we don't know it. Duh, right? To understand the effects, we can look to statistics of another Western country, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom Bible Society surveyed British children and found many could not identify common Bible stories. When given a list of stories, almost one in three didn't choose the nativity as part of the Bible. And over half, almost 60%, didn't know that Jonah being swallowed by the great fish is in the Bible. Now that sounds kind of sad and scary, but it gets worse. British parents didn't do much better. Around 30% of parents don't know Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, or the Good Samaritan are in the Bible. To make matters worse, 27% think Superman is or might be a biblical story. 
More than one in three believe, believes the same about Harry Potter. And more than half, 54% believe the Hunger Games is or might be a story from the Bible. Ugh, right? We don't know the word. And, and, and so here's, here's the question I'm asking, okay? I mean, why? why? I mean, you read stuff like that, it's a real slap in the face, right, to the church. Why is that going on? And, and I can only surmise that people, too many people, just don't see the word of God as important or maybe most importantly, authoritative, right? If we saw the word of God as important and authoritative, we'd be in the word, right? And so you get this, this picture of Ezra as a man who studied the law of the Lord. And I think, I think we can say Ezra knew something about the value of that book. He knew something not just about the value of the book, but the authority of the book. Contrast what we just read about the Western church to Ezra's clear value of the word. Look again at verse 6 and verse 25. I just want to highlight this again. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in what? In the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Who wrote that sentence? Ezra wrote this book. So he's describing himself and he's saying, this is who I am. I'm a man who's skilled in this book, but not just any book. This is the law of Moses that God gave. That's what he's saying, right? He's saying what Moses wrote down wasn't Moses. It was God who gave it to him. His understanding of the authority behind the word of God is significant in that regard. And I love, I love this. We, we see that repeated over and over again. But in verse 25, I, this is the king, right? Who's, who's writing. This is Artaxerxes who's talking to Ezra as he gives this decree. And he says, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates. What does that mean? I think it means this. It means as he's thinking about Ezra the man, he's going, that's the guy that always carries the Bible in his arms. Literally, Ezra, this law that's in your hand, he just had the word of God with him all the time because he understood the authority and the value of the word. And so what's Ezra, what's Ezra's message to us through this first description of himself? Be people who study, who know the word of God. What are we doing? When we gather together as believers throughout the week on a Sunday morning, I mean, you, you might notice that on a Sunday morning that the, the, the preaching of the Word is central. The reading of the Word is central. The singing of the Word is central. Right? Because we understand the, the authority and the importance of God's Word. But what, what happens throughout the rest of the week? And I'm not saying this as, a, as, a, as an accusation because I know that the Word of God is being open, but I just want to challenge us a little bit about how we spend our time and what we do together as the people of God when we gather. When you're doing a Bible study, are you studying the Bible? There's lots of good books out there, and they're helpful. I use them, devotional books, commentaries, all that. That's all good. But they're not the inspired Word of God, right? They, they, they help expand the Word of God. They help explain the Word of God, but they're not the Word of God. And, and here's the difference. 
commentaries, devotionals, Christian literature, as helpful as they are, have no power apart from the Word of God that undergirds them. And again, if they're not pointing to the Word, they're not pointing to the power source. Right? Do we value the Word? You say, well, I do value the Word. I want to value the Word. The hard part is, is it's just hard sometimes. It's hard to read it. It's hard to understand it. It's, it's, it's really hard to memorize it. And I get that. But I want to challenge us. I'm challenging myself in this. Think of all the other things in life that are hard to get and understand and memorize, and yet we do it anyway. Right? If you can, if you can recite baseball stats for every Cubs team in recent memory, You can do it, right? If you can recite all of the names, and this is going to sound like, sorry, I'm picking on you. If you can recite all the names of the contestants who've been on The Bachelor for the last seven seasons, and I know some of you can. If you can recite the lyrics to every Taylor Swift song or Chance the Rapper rhyme, and I know some of you can, right? Why, why, why do you do that? How can you do that? You know why you do it? Because you value it. You value it. It's important to you. It's, it, 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 there's something about those things, and I'm not, I'm not judging this, okay? Don't get me wrong, but there's something about those things that give you joy. That's okay. But there's no power in them. The Word of God is the power, and we're capable, people, of studying the Word. Not just because we're capable in and of ourselves, but because unlike Taylor Swift songs and baseball stats, the Holy Spirit in you is there to help you study and know the Word. I don't think the Holy Spirit really cares about Taylor Swift lyrics, but I know He cares about the Word of God. And He's deposited the Spirit in us for that reason. Ezra was a man who knew his Bible. How will I value God's Word? You'll value when you see it as authoritative. There's nothing more important to me, to my life, to the church, to this world, than the revelation of the Almighty God who made it. Right? That's true, right? It's authoritative. So this is Ezra's first descriptor. He was a man who knew his Bible. Yes, if you could put up the second one, he was a man who also did the Word. He practiced the Bible. Now, we're told here that he was a scribe. Let me explain that a little bit because I think for Ezra, it has a, a double meaning. Yes, he was a priest in the line of Aaron. His scribe duties would have included then in that function the word, but he was also a man in the court of Artaxerxes, right? Not, not just any, uh, anyone, frankly, whether they're a Hebrew or whether they're a, a Persian citizen, not just anyone is going to have access to the king. Ezra did, right? And, and the fact that he's a scribe probably explains something of why he had access to the king. He was probably not just a scribe for Israel, but a scribe for Persia. In other words, his dictation duties probably put him in the court of the king to record Persian stuff, laws, 
events. You, you got to remember, this is a day and age where very, very few people were literate. Most people weren't reading and writing in this age. So to, to have a skill like that really was a, an important and valuable skill. And, and the fact that he's in front of Artaxerxes tells us that probably that's what he was doing for the king. All right? So he's in this situation. And, and what, does that, what does that tell me about how he sees his study flesh out in his life? Well, if we look at what's being said by Artaxerxes here, we see that the king doesn't just see Ezra as a man who knows the Bible, but clearly he sees a man who acts on it because if, if Ezra wasn't asking the king for these things in the decree, I don't think the king would have thought of them. He wouldn't have known what was going on in Jerusalem. He wouldn't have known about the temple there and the importance of worship there, the importance of bringing the people back to the word of God there. I believe that Ezra was the one who was telling him, look, king, these are important things that you need to know and act upon. And I think that Ezra did that because he, as a man who knew his Bible, knew that the Psalms say that the the heart of the king is, is like a stream in the hands of the Lord. So his the word of God in him empowers him and inspires him to go act on what he knows and ask the king for the word of God to be displayed in the world. He did something about his study, his faith. He acted on it. You know, one of the things that that, uh, that I heard a lot this week, and I've heard it over and over again over the last year or two, and you have too, when, when, when these big uh, tragic events happen. So Las Vegas, any of the other shootings that we've seen, the terrorist attacks. Uh, what, what happens is you see a lot of people on social media in particular say something to the effect of, I'm, let's pray for the people of, right? Let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. And then a, a big pushback that you'll see from a lot of people is, your prayers don't mean much unless you do X, Y, and Z. You seen that? Your prayers don't mean a whole lot if you're not going to actually take action here. Thanks for the prayers. Maybe you should actually do something. You hear that? All right, I do. Here's the thing. That's a really dangerous statement, right? So I acknowledge that up front. That's a very dangerous statement. Because anything that we do that isn't rooted in prayer is in vain. Right? So I'm going to say that very clearly. That's a dangerous and foolish thing to say because any actions that we take, unless they're rooted in the Lord, are in vain. Man makes his plans. It's the Lord who establishes his steps. So action apart from prayer is a very foolish thing. Having said that, I'm going to grant this. There's some truth to the criticism, right? There is some truth to the criticism because it's easy to say, hey, I'll pray for you. When we're called to actually love our neighbor, it means pray for them and act, right? Do something with that. I think that's an important part of understanding the, the Word of God rightly, to understand the Gospel rightly. We're not just called to be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. And we say, yeah, we get that, but I think we oftentimes apply that to our own personal holiness. Being a doer of the Word means, means, means make, apply this to your own heart and be personally holy, and that is absolutely true, but it's not the whole picture. We're called to live kingdom values in the world that are informed by the Word and prayer, right? So listen to this quote. This is from J. Gresham Macon, who is, uh, he was a, once at Princeton, 
seminary back when Princeton was still a very solid school. And then when they kind of fell to liberalism, he branched out and started Westminster. So we got a Presbyterian guy here. Uh, and this is what he says. I think this is really apropos for this discussion. He says, for Christians to influence the world with the truth of God, God's word requires the recovery of the great Reformation doctrine of vocation. Christians are called to God's service, not only in church professions, but also in every secular calling. The task of restoring truth to the culture depends largely on our lay people. To bring back truth on a practical level, the church must encourage Christians to be not merely consumers of culture, but makers of culture. The church needs to cultivate Christian artists, musicians, novelists, Filmmakers, journalists, attorneys, teachers, scientists, business executives, and the like, teaching its lay people the sense in which every secular vocation, including above all the callings of husband, wife, and parent, is a sphere of Christian ministry. It's a way of serving God and neighbor that is grounded in God's truth. Christian lay people must be encouraged to be leaders in their fields rather than eager to please followers, working from the assumptions of their biblical worldview, not the vapid cliches of pop culture. It's a good statement. Here's what he's saying. Look, you're called. You're equipped with the Word of God, not just to use your gifts within the church, but to go and be salt and light in the world, right? Your vocation is your ministry. This is what it means to to come and to be a part of the people of God, studying the Word of God, and then being sent out to be doers of the Word. It's not just about your personal holiness. Although your personal holiness is key, it's about how your personal holiness shines a light to the world about who Jesus is and what He does. One of the tensions in the modern church is, is I think, this perceived gap between knowing Scripture and doing Scripture. Right? And there's a, there's some validity to the tension, but, but this is something that we hear a lot about, right? You've got churches who are known for being word focused, gospel focused, doctrine heavy, and you've got churches who are known for being socially active, you know, social justice issues, whatever. And, and sometimes we, we, we sort of see these polarizations, right? Where, where the assumption is that these people over here are all about knowing the word, but they don't do anything. And these people over here are all about doing stuff, but they don't really know their Bibles. And you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. But the answer, according to the word here, is that something in the middle is what God has called us to. Be people who know the word of God, who are gospel focused, who, who understand right doctrine. That's so important to what we do. If we don't know that, we're not going to be doing the right things. But if we're doing, if we're knowing the right things, we're doing the right things. We're living in the world in such a way that we are indeed salt and light. So, let me give you another quote. This again from Don Carson, the guy I said who bleeds the Bible. He says, this is not a subtle plea for a denunded gospel. He's responding to the accusation that I just made, saying that churches should be doers of the word, doctrinally sound churches, gospel focusers, doers. He's saying this is not a subtle plea for a denunded gospel, a merely privatized gospel, a gospel without social ramifications. We wisely reread the accounts of the evangelical awakening in England and the Great Awakening in America, and the extraordinary ministries of Howell Harris, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers, and others, we rightly remind ourselves how under God their converts led the fights to abolish slavery, to reform the penal code, 
to begin trade unions to transform prisons and free children from serving in the mines. All of society was transformed because soundly converted men and women saw that life must be lived under God and in a manner pleasing to Him. But virtually without exception, he says these men and women put the gospel first. They were gospel people. They reveled in it. They preached it. They cherished Bible reading and exposition that was Christ-centered and gospel-centered. And from that base, moved out into the broader social agendas. In short, they put the gospel first, not least in their own aspirations. Not to see this priority means we are not more than a generation away from denying the gospel. That's an important last statement. He's saying if, if the church isn't functioning that way, both poles die. It's true. Are we a people who don't just study the Bible for our own personal edification because we know that the power of the Word changes lives. It changes mine. It redeems me. It reforms me to be salt and light in the world, to be a minister of the gospel to the lost around me and to the church. Ezra was this kind of man. He studied the Word. He practiced it. And then thirdly, if you want to throw it up, Yaz, he taught it. Now this is almost sort of like the, the obvious outflow of the first two. If you know the Word of God and you're living out the Word of God, just by the nature of those two things, you're teaching the Word of God. Because again, it's bubbling out of you, right? It's bubbling out of you. But there's a, there's another step here that's true of Ezra and, and, and will be true of us and some of you very, very true in particular who are called, who are gifted as teachers in the church to teach the word. And I've already touched on this a little bit. I've already tried this a little bit to think about what are we, what are we teaching when we're doing our community groups and our Bible studies, when we're gathering together on a Sunday morning? What are we teaching? It's gotta be the word, right? It's gotta be the word. You know what, what's, what's true? And again, this, this is, this is rooted in that idea that there's, there's power in the word. And the word alone. That, that's why Sola Scriptura was such an important part of the Reformation. They understood it's the word of God that has power. In fact, Martin Luther has, has a quote. I wish I would have brought it with me. I did. I'll try to do this a little bit from memory. But he, he basically says this. He says, you know, uh, I set my heart to teach the word as well. And, and I didn't have to do a whole lot else. That's not to say that he didn't do anything. He was a man who practiced what he taught. I mean, the dude walked up to the door in Wittenberg and he nailed the theses to the door and he stood before the Roman church. I mean, the guy did stuff with his faith, right? So we're not talking about a guy who was in this pole over here who was all about Bible study and not doing. And yet, he says, it wasn't the doing on my part that accomplished the change. It was God's word. In fact, he even says in there, the Word of God did it. I was sitting back with my two buddies drinking beer in Wittenberg and the Word of God accomplished it all. How true is that? I, it's probably true. I'm sure we know Luther liked his beer, but that wasn't the point, right? The point was he knew that the Word had power. It was the Word that brought about the Reformation. It was the Word that brought about revival in the church. What are we teaching We've got to be teachers of the Word. Have, have you encountered this? I hope you have. I hope you've, you've encountered it here, although I, I don't say this for my own benefit. But have you ever been in the presence of someone, a man or woman, who's teaching the Word of God 
And there's a sense in which, in just the hearing of the teaching, you, you can say, that man, that woman has met with God. It just comes out. That's not the, the personality of the preacher. That's not the charisma, the charisma of the teacher. If it is, you've been duped into something else, okay? But when the, when the word of God is taught and proclaimed and valued and treasured and lifted up and say, this is the power, there's a sense in which when the people of God, because of the spirit in them, there's a resonance that just says, yes, that's God. That's the power. That, that, that teacher who's bringing this word, they've met with God. That ought to be the goal of, of every sermon, every Bible study, every community group, right? The world needs men and women who teach the word. And they teach the word out of an overflow of their study. They know it. And out of their practice, they live it. So that when they teach, there's some authority and authenticity to what they're doing because they, they're people of the word. Ezra was these three things. And then we're told this. Next slide, yes. Secondly, Ezra was a man upon whom God's favor rested. That's not a coincidence that those two things go hand in hand. Look again at verse 6, verse 9, and verse 28. The end of verse 6, we see this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given And the king granted him all that he asked. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9. For on the first day of the month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. Why? For the good hand of his God was on him. Look again at verse 28. God extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. Why? Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Ezra understands this. He sees this very clearly. Like All that's happening here, from my own ministry of the word to the king's response to that, I mean, this is nuts again. Just like it happened the first time. The fact that a, that a king is saying, hey, go back. Build, worship, do it right. Make the, make the word of your God important. In fact, he gives Ezra authority here to say, if, if, you know, uphold this law. And if, if you have the power, if somebody doesn't uphold the law to punish them, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. And Ezra's going, man, how is this happening? Is it because of me? Is it because, well, I just walked in there with my Bible in my hand and I said, Art Xerxes, hear me. No, he says, no, man, the Lord was on me. God did this. God used me and the the power of the Word in my ministry, but God did this. There's a deep connection, though, between the favor of God and the priority of God's Word. Why is the favor of God upon Ezra? Do you think it would have been upon Ezra if Ezra was a man who just sort of like took willy-nilly his task as a priest and a scribe? Eh, No, in fact, we know 
You can read Ezekiel, you can read the, the, the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Uh, scribes who did that did not have the hand of God on them in a kind way. Right? There's a connection between Ezra's commitment to the ministry of the Word and God's using that for His favor to be granted to the people of God. That's an important thing I want us to understand. Do, do you want to see the favor of God in your life, in your ministry, in this church, in this neighborhood, it is not going to happen. I shouldn't put God in a box. It could. But rightly speaking, if we look across the way that God acts in human history, it doesn't happen apart from a revival where people are thirsty and hungry for His Word. Now let me ask you this. Does that mean it's a formula? We're going to study our Bible more. Let's go do our Bibles a little bit. And and if we do that, then the the hand of God has to come upon us because we're doing the Bible. Is it a formula? No, it's not a formula. And in fact, that's an encouraging thing for us to hear sometimes because we all know churches, and and I I would include us in that. I mean, we're not bursting at the seams, right? We can look down the street and see there are ministries out there, there are churches out there, there are people's uh, uh, evangelistic efforts out there that are, that are just, for whatever reason, the, the favor of God seems to be on them. There, stuff's happening. And, and there's sometimes when, when you might be saying, I'm, I don't have any reason in my conscience to believe that I'm, that I'm not a person of the book. I, I, I am a person who's dependent on the power of the Word of God. And I don't always see that power. Okay. That's, that's fair. It's not a formula. So, how do we see it? Do you want to see the favor of God? I do. Well, one, yeah, we recognize it is a call for us to repent and humble ourselves under the power of God's Word, for sure. But in that comes the ministry of what? Prayer, right? God, we have to ask God, just grant your favor. God, we want to humble ourselves. We, we know the authority and the power of your word. We, we, we long for this revival here, but we know that it's not a formula, God. We need you. That's why we value your word, God. Not because we value the pages bound in leather, but we value you. We need you, God. We need to pray for God's favor. And when we pray for the favor of God, when God's favor is poured out, there's always fruit. There's always movement. There's always something that happens, right? So how does that happen? How do we become a people of the Word and a people of prayer? Let me just end with this. I'm going to point you back to what was so important in verse 10. Ezra didn't just study the Bible, do the Bible, and teach the Bible. Ezra set his heart to do those things. How how does this happen in us? We, we set our hearts on these things. Which is to say this. This is so important. Because if I ended the sermon right now, you, you could walk out of here and you think, all right, if I just work, if I just screw up my courage hard enough to, and my devotion and my will hard enough to just pray more and read more and study more and practice more, then good things will happen. And, and that would be a very moralistic message. <laughs> that would be void of the gospel. That's not the point. But in the setting his heart, I think we see the point. It's this. It's, it's about what you believe more than what you do. Ezra did these things because he believed 
in the power of God. He believed in the effective ministry of the Word of God. He believed in God. He trusted the Lord. It's about what we believe more than what we do. That doesn't mean we don't do, but the doing stems from believing. It's something that we call grace-driven effort. Do, but, 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 but it's rooted in what we believe. I set my heart, he says, on these things. And, and I would say this, we set our hearts on what we treasure. Right? Baseball stats, song lyrics, we set our hearts on what we treasure. And what we treasure, what we ought to treasure, is Christ. We treasure Christ when we see and we savor the redeeming love of God in Jesus. You know why Jesus is better than songs and baseball and whatever else you want to set your heart on? You know why Jesus is better? Because Jesus is the only one of all those things that actually saves you. That gives life to you. None of those things can reckon with your biggest problem, your sin before a holy God, your, your, your placement under the curse of death by that sin. None of those things can take care of, can sustain you with, can satisfy you through that life of curse. The only thing that can is the redeeming love of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, and where does that understanding come from? from the Word. We understand the good news of the Gospel. Our state, what God did about it, and now who we are because of faith in Him, that's, that's good news. That's news to be cherished. And that drives our devotion. I want to just uh, back that up with the Word. Remember in Luke chapter 24? This is right after the resurrection. The disciples bump into Jesus on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him yet? What does Jesus do? We're told there that he, he began to show them as they're saying, you know, this, who are you? Where have you been, man? You don't know why we're here? What's going on? I mean, this Jesus, you know, we thought he was the savior and then he died and, and, and then we're told that he rose again and we came to find out. I mean, where have you been, man? He, this guy's, Jesus is there. They don't recognize him. He's asked some questions like, oh, who are you guys? What are you up to? <laughs> they're like, what? And it says that that he opened up the Scriptures. In fact, let me just read it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, this, this book is really all about him. It's pointing to the redeeming love of God in Christ. That's why we, we value this. That's what it does. And then I love what they said after that. And a few verses later, in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did you capture this? Did not our hearts burn? Ezra set his heart on these things. Why? His heart burned. He desired, he valued, he treasured. Why? Because the word of God came alive to him. And that's what was happening here with these disciples. Jesus opened the word and they're like, man, when you opened up the word, oh, our hearts were just burning in us. And then what they do from there? They, well, they went out and changed the world, didn't they? That, that's what Ezra's getting at here. I, I think we see a, 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 a picture of Ezra's understanding of the gospel here in the last two verses. You can throw them up on the screen. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. And what's the opposite of courage? Fear. Why would he be afraid? Because he was standing before the king, Artaxerxes, who could have killed him. The king who represented the, the empire that had exiled them, who had conquered them. This is a picture of wickedness. This is a picture of death. This is a picture of the consequence for sin. And he's standing before everything that represents that curse. And he says, I took courage because God was with me. That's the gospel. We stand courageously confident because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because we can say this, God has saved us. When we say that, oh man, we treasure the Word. Father, would Your Word bring power to Your people. Lord, help us to be a people who are just hungry for the Word of God, for the power of the Word of God. Lord, let us be people who, who know the Word, who teach the word. Let us do it out of gratitude because of the word made flesh, your son who came and died for us to set us free and give us confidence before our captors. And Lord, we would ask again that your hand of favor would be upon this place. It already is in the fact that, Lord, your spirit dwells within us and we are redeemed from our sin that is the favor of God. But Lord, we would ask for greater favor than that. That that ministry of reconciliation would impact our neighborhood and our city with revival. Fill this place with people who are filled with your word and the power that lies within. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.